0: Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, I will start reading in verse 12. For those of you uh, who are with us for the first time or with us hearing me preach for the first time, you're like the person that turns to the end of the book and reads the last chapter to see how it ends. This is the last sermon in a series that has gone on for about a year, I would say, on First Peter. We'll conclude our study in this great letter today. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that you would strengthen us, even in spite of technological issues, and things that get in the way, and distractions and postures of mind and heart that are selfish and proud. I pray that you would cause us to repent even in this moment, that we would open ourselves to hear the exhortation from your word. That you would give us peace in our hearts, even as the Apostle Peter prays for the church to have peace that you would help us this morning. If you would, where you are, pray for yourself that the Lord would open the ears of your heart, as it were, and prepare you to receive the word he has for you from these verses. And if you would also pray for me, that I would be able to communicate clearly, and that the Lord would use these words to be beneficial to
1: His people, the church.
0: <coughs> Father, we do thank You and we trust You. We pray that You would do it this time as You will for Your glory and the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I want to say a few words about our approach to this text or the structure of the text and how that relates to the structure of the sermon. Usually what we do when we come to a passage of scripture is I just take it phrase by phrase, line by line, even in some cases word by word or part of word by part of word, and we go through the entire text. Uh, Nothing really fancy, especially when you're dealing with an epistle in the New Testament. That's the preferred way of doing it. Uh, If we were doing the Psalms or Maybe Old Testament prophecy or something like that. You would have a different structure, a different approach. You got to cover more ground in order to get the full picture. But in this text, this is a, uh, if 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 you're reading along the ESV like I am, and it it says in a heading which is not inspired, final greetings. Right, that's just added there to let you know this is how they understand these words, and it's kind of a. Uh, a last ditch effort for Peter to say everything he wants to say. Maybe he's running out of papyri as he's writing this letter to the churches and he's got to crunch it all in and write it down. And so there's not really inherent structure to these verses. Uh, there, there is a purpose, but he, he just throws line on line and they're not as connected as some of his more lengthy arguments are in the letter so today, we're going to take it generally in order, but we're going to save the central exhortation to the end. That central exhortation, if you were listening closely or you were familiar with this passage, is, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what we're going to do first is deal with what I call secondary observations, uh, exhortations, and a blessing. the the final benediction, and then we'll come back around in the second half of the message and deal with that central exhortation. Okay? There's so much that is interesting about these verses. If I could summarize all of it under one heading, it would maybe be something like this. I love you, love one another. But that's a little bit too general to express the different things going on in the text. And that central exhortation to stand firm is very important for us to hear particularly when we understand it in context, what he's telling us to stand firm in. So let's look at first the secondary observations. The first one is I want you to notice that Peter has relationships with other people. Peter and others. He says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, could be translated also, also your faithful brother, as I regard him, and Mark, my son, sends you greetings. So so two other individuals mentioned in the conclusion of the letter. And what this signals to us is that Peter isn't just out there doing whatever as some kind of Christian superhero. There are no Christian superheroes except the Lord Jesus himself. The great ones in our history as Christians were made so by the power of God and in most cases by the help of other people. We can think of almost, just take your pick of any Christian hero, quote unquote. Someone like Martin Luther had help. Augustine had his mom, Monica, praying for him to become a Christian and then into all different kinds of ministry. This is a unique feature of the Christian religion when it comes to our sacred writings. If you read the teachings of the Compassionate Buddha or the Bhagavad Gita or whatever, uh, it's just these guys telling you what they think, referencing essentially no one else. This is from me and this is my word to you and what you need to do. These, what we have, what you have in front of you, this this collection of writings, especially the New Testament, is the result of real correspondence between real people in real life settings. So these verses, even though we don't know these people as much as we know the apostles, are very important for us to give us these historical markers and tell us that these are real documents. That took place. This isn't just some guy trying to give us some religious message for his own purposes or financial gain. He's writing a letter to people he loves and he's referencing other people that work with him. So, who is Sylvanus? Who is Mark? And is this literally Peter's son? Sylvanus, likely the courier of this letter, the guy who left wherever Peter was, we'll get to that in a minute, where Peter wrote the letter and carried it all the way to these. Uh, colonies in Asia Minor, that's probably what Peter means here by written by Sylvanus. He could also be the more proficient Greek speaker helping Peter write this letter in Greek. Sylvanus is, in fact, the same person that we meet in Acts by the name of Silas. Uh, Sylvanus is, and, and Silas are just Aramaic and Greek, different ways of saying the same name and And he's named as at in some sense maybe even a co-author of the Thessalonian correspondence mentioned also as one of the original planters for the church in Corinth so he's he's one of the popular guys right the, the one of the guys that a lot of the churches know throughout the Roman Empire. He gets around a lot. he's one of the main companions of paul he's He's like the special agent of Peter to carry this letter over a thousand miles from Rome where I believe Peter is writing from, to these colonies in Asia Minor. He's also one of the couriers of the letter from the Jerusalem Council that we find in Acts chapter 15. So that that first ecumenical creed saying, yes, Gentiles can be Christians too. Silvanus or Silas is one of the ones that gets to carry that around the different churches through the Roman Empire, telling, hey, this is the official decision of the elders in Jerusalem.
1: So he's not one of the apostles, but he sure makes their work a lot easier. He's a co-laborer in the most true sense. Mark, the other person mentioned here,
0: likely none other than the author of the gospel that bears his name. Not literally Peter's son. He's he's perhaps a close disciple or ministry assistant. In fact, in all likelihood, this is the same Mark that Paul decided not to take along with him on the missionary journey. So after that happened, at some point after Barnabas went with Mark on a different missionary journey, Peter picks up Mark and goes to Rome.
1: And for the rest of the time, as far as we know, Mark serves there faithfully alongside Peter. Just as an aside, that's an encouragement to any of us who have failed in any significant way. Mark bailed on the mission and forsook Paul's journey.
0: And yet he finds himself a few years later as a co-laborer alongside Peter in Rome. And so Peter's using these familial terms, a faithful brother and my son, to refer to these guys that are working along with him. Do you sense his trust and his love? This is a pattern set by Jesus with the 12. If you were there in the week leading up to and after the events of the Passion, right, and and seeing what those guys did, and Jesus would have, if you would have known that Jesus' plan was to entrust the mission to them after he left, you would be scratching your head. You'd be thinking, this probably isn't the wisest plan, Jesus. You're going to trust the mission to them. And have them carry this out. But you see that the love that Jesus has for these disciples and the investment that He has in them through that relationship is what enables them to continue that pattern on
1: downward. You're going to trust those 11 guys. You're going to trust Mark to be your co-laborer in Rome.
0: But this is God's wisdom and it is indication of a fundamental belief in the power of the holy spirit to use yes even flawed people to accomplish his work rarely ever do we get pushed across the finish line by really skilled successful powerful people Let's reflect on the story of Gideon You've got too many men you're going to take credit for it You've got to be weakened a bit so god's going to use peter and mark
1: to be the founders and Pastors of the church in Rome. These two are, of course, uh, just representative of a larger
0: group in the New Testament of these co laborers, people that are named by the apostles in their writings as very significant. You think of Titus, Timothy, Lydia, Priscilla, Aquila, the list goes on and on. What about us? What if you were alive during the time of the apostles?
1: Would you be a Sylvanus, Silas or Mark? Would you be a Priscilla or Aquila or Lydia or whoever? Or would you be too busy with career, family, hobbies? We often think too highly of ourselves.
0: We we think, well, if if I were alive back then, I would X, Y, and Z. But what you are now is a reflection of what you would have been then. It is the same King and the same
1: Gospel summoning you to the same kind of work.
0: It's happening now. The Gospel advances. This is my exhortation and encouragement to you. The Gospel advances not through the next best preacher or teacher or author or social media influencer or podcaster or convention or denomination. The Gospel advances. The church is built through the love and commitment of radically ordinary
1: men and women doing the work of ministry. Your King has asked for your aid in His hour of need. What will you do? Will you be a Sylvanus or a Mark? That's the first observation. I
0: just think it's so encouraging to see the apostles aren't superheroes. They need help.
1: Number two, Peter declares the truth. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring
0: that this is the true grace of God. He calls it a brief writing
1: Don't give me such a hard time with the length of my sermons. What's great about this, and just as an encouragement, Peter doesn't view this as his magnum opus. I've
0: written to you briefly. So so he's just working with the time he has, with the length of the papyri that he has, and he's trying to get the letter to them to encourage them. By by Sylvanus, I've written to you briefly,
1: and this becomes one of the most beloved letters in the New Testament. But the main point under this heading is that is this, that He tells us that this is the truth. In the second half of this message, we'll look at the central exhortation, the grace of God,
0: stand firm in it. But understand what this is. What this is. Sitting in your lap. Meaning specifically 1 Peter. This is a document written by a man who claims to have seen Jesus alive, dead, buried, resurrected, and He wrote this to you at risk to Himself saying, this is the true grace of God. I am
1: declaring and exhorting this is the truth. He says He's an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. He says this is the most important stuff you need to know.
0: He's not telling us something of a peripheral nature. This is the true grace of God. At great risk to himself. You could maybe make the argument that if this were written over 200 years after the events of the passion, that there would be some benefit in someone writing a letter like this if it weren't genuine. But Peter writing this is inviting risk to his life. He left Jerusalem on the run because his life was in danger, and hides out in Rome and writes this, alludes to the place that he's writing from using lingo that maybe the people hunting
1: him down wouldn't understand. In this case, it makes no sense at all that this would be a forgery. So this is an invitation and
0: encouragement to the skeptics.
1: Understand, we are saved by
0: faith or confidence in a person, not in a book. However, this book shows you the person, Jesus Christ. The questions you may have and the things you may wonder about this book have real and satisfying answers, and I say that from experience. But I appeal to you the fact that this document exists, and there are copies of the original dating back to the early second century when state-sponsored persecution was a thing.
1: This letter was kept and copied and found even in as far as Egypt in the second century. So we know this at least. A man in exile and in hiding because of
0: his love for the Lord Jesus writes a letter exposing himself to greater risk out of love for the Lord Jesus and the church, naming other people known by the church who can verify that this letter is legit. And why? Because he claims
1: to have seen the Lord Jesus alive, dead, buried, raised again. The letter itself and adherence to the faith kept this in circulation
0: from its writing on throughout the history of the church. What you have in your hands and what what I'm reading up here is a translation, to be sure, but a faithful translation of a truly ancient and reliable testimony and worship of the Lord Jesus by none other than Peter himself. This may not resonate with you. You may be like, Why are we talking about this? Of course the Bible is true. But if, you, if you've been down there to those bedrock levels of questions, this is massive. This document exists. In short, here's my argument. For the believers in this room, I hope this is an encouragement. And for the skeptics in the room, I hope you will take this as a loving challenge. If Christianity were a farce, If Jesus of Nazareth did not walk out of the tomb alive after having been dead, this document would not exist. I promise you that. There would be something else. There would be other stuff,
1: but this document wouldn't exist. And the arguments against that statement, you can make some, but they're not persuasive at all. Change my mind. Number three, Peter tells us the time. Again, this falls under
0: secondary observation. Peter tells us the time. She who is at Babylon. Time is really important. And knowing the time is really important. I woke up this morning in Texas. And there were hundreds of people who I don't even know who had to do so many different things on time in order for me to get here and be preaching to you right now. what in the world does this statement have to do with time? And And it's so important for us to understand the time. How does she who is at Babylon tell us what time it is? If you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, you know that Babylon was the kingdom that came and finally destroyed Judah. Took them all into captivity. Israel fell a good bit before the northern kingdom. Judah hung on for a bit. When went into the depths of idolatry worse than Israel had and God finally says, that's enough. You're going into exile. So this reintroduces us to this theme of exiles, which we found in chapter 1. The dispersion, the elect exiles, if you remember all the way back when we started this in chapter 1. Scholars are essentially unanimous that when Peter says Babylon, he's referring to Rome. The capital of the entity of power in the world that is oppressing and opposing the work of Christ and the people of God. So Rome equals Babylon. Again, what, what does it have to do with this time? What time do you think it is? In your mind, are we still exiles in Babylon? Or in your mind, are we already returning and in charge in some way? You trying to overthrow Babylon? Are you surprised that the Babylonians are acting like Babylonians? You mad, bro? You upset that the Babylon's being in charge and, and they're not too happy that we are here? Even more cutting, do you, in your lack of being able to understand the times, do you lack compassion to your Babylonian neighbors and friends? Job's the, the commentator that I've used, drawing from two other commentators, says this. Nothing said in all of First Peter about Babylon, uh, n- nothing said about its evil, the only wrong thing with Babylon, as far as First Peter is concerned, is that it is not home. You're in exile. So Rome equals Babylon becomes a symbol for the capital, the place of exile, away from the true inheritance in heaven. I'm going to tell you what time it is. The time is exile, and you're in Babylon, dear Christian don't have that as a fundamental conviction of understanding what is even happening in the world it's it's going to be very frustrating you're going to get mad you're going to get all been out of shape understand what i'm trying to say we're not in charge and it's never gone well when we have been if you know anything about history you know that's true and babylon the nations are being used as a scaffolding that will eventually be taken away and what will be left is the church. And only the glory of the Lord will fill that land. In summary, the Lord is using the world and the rulers of this age for His own good purposes, starting with discipline of His own people. you understand what God did through Babylon? If you read Hezekiah, uh, uh, Habakkuk rather, that's not a book in the Bible, Another H name. Just making sure you're listening. My fear, my pastoral concern, is that because of personal, theological, or cultural reasons, you may be stubbornly insisting that the clock, that is the Bible, is wrong. Because it's telling you a time that you don't like. You don't want to be in Babylon. But eventually. Here's the hope. There's eschatological hope. Because when Peter writes this, Babylon is like a ruined fishing village. Like literal Babylon. Eventually that happened to Rome. Alaric and the Germanic tribes came and wiped out Rome for the most part. I mean, it took took a while. Eventually all of Babylon will be destroyed. The unhewn stone in Daniel's vision will come and destroy all the kingdoms of the earth. And that kingdom will stand forever, never to be destroyed. The tables will turn. The arrogance of Babylon will come crumbly down with that kingdom. So you don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. We have won and we will win. But not yet. Number four, Peter emphasizes unity between faithful churches. He says, "She who is at Babylon, Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings." The church in Rome, understand that's what I'm saying Peter is referring to here. "She who is at Babylon, who is likewise elect, same word as chosen, sends you greetings." So Peter is promoting unity through solidarity. Likewise chosen. Just like you, you exiles out in Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and all the other colonies that he names. The church that's still here, they got to stay in their homes. They're chosen just like you. If you want to turn back to the first of, of uh, this letter, First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. So in the very beginning verses, elect exiles. And then at the very end... She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen. So this is, these are bookends, if you will, of the whole letter. He's, he's encouraging unity for us to understand that if you're away or you're here, you're in Jerusalem, you're in Antioch, you're in Rome, you're all the way in Gaul, we are united in this reality of being chosen. The thematic gatekeepers, if you will, of the whole letter is this seemingly and counterintuitive pairing of these two ideas. Being chosen and loved by God and set apart by God in His own initiative for His purposes and at the same time being an outcast, not at home, a misfit, an undesirable, and being labeled as the disturber of the peace. Those are the simultaneous realities for the Christian. You're both of those at the same time. We saw the opposite of this, opposite side of this coin last week when he said, um, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being endured by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he's trying to create solidarity and he begins by saying the sufferings that you're enduring, specifically in that context, the opposition of the enemy, take courage because... Your brothers everywhere are enduring the same thing. And then he's creating solidarity again by saying, you're likewise chosen, you're all in this together. You're part of this family that God has created by his own choosing. So it's not all bad. The, the church is not just the bludgeoned and mistreated, globally marginalized community of outcasts. Right? That's not who we are. We're also part of the elect church of the Most High God. I think some of the discouragement and complacency that we can encounter in our lives as Christians is due to the fact that we are so individualistic and so isolated. We have
1: blinders on. You
0: can do that very well with a microphone. I'm not saying that we're not aware of what is going on in churches around. Like some pastor gets arrested and we all hear about it, Right? All the different entities email us asking for money so they can help him. We know what's going on. We have social media. But rarely do you meet a professing Christian whose very identity and self-awareness is wrapped up in the glory and destiny of the church together. Something very different. We don't see the church not as it really is. That church global, universal is, to quote Lewis, spread out throughout all time and space and rooted in eternity terrible as an army with many banners. You see that entity? Do you see that family stretched through all nations, made up of all ethnicities of people who love the Lord Jesus? Because we don't see it, we don't draw strength from that reality. So we lack solidarity and we don't really see who our family is and we don't grow in unity or love because we're so busy and so interested in so many different things. So Peter wants us to feel this unity, to feel this solidarity with churches. There's chances that there are people in these churches in Bithynia and Galatia and all these other places who had never met the Christians in Rome and vice versa. And yet he wants them to sense their unity In God. Number five, Peter's emphasis on unity within the local church. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. The the kiss of love. Listen, it's always perilous to outright outright defy a command of Scripture. And to announce one's opposition to a command of Scripture from the pulpit probably carries with it some risk. But fear not, I am not going to come and kiss any of you. Except my lovely wife and kids. And fear not for yourselves. This does not create a moral obligation for you to kiss everybody. Please understand that. Don't do that, okay? But if you grew up in the South like I did, you know that this is very much a cultural thing. My grandmother's sister, so my great-aunt, Avon, called her Aunt A. Every time you saw her, whether it was a birthday party or Christmas or Thanksgiving, she would come up and give you a big kiss. You just knew it was going to happen. There was nothing you could do. And it wasn't offensive. If you came and started to try to kiss me, it would be offensive, so don't. So there's an age and a personality and a gender thing that, is, that, that fits with this, but not for all of us. But to, to put this in a funny way, Peter, maybe embracing some of the old statement, when in Rome, right?" this is very much an Italian thing, air-kissing at least, the time is different, and the Roman salute at that time was different than kissing. But he is saying this in your behavior, when you meet each other in person, treat each other like family. So, what is an appropriate sign of affection, of familial affection? Here in North Idaho, it's different than it was in the South, for sure. In the South, if you just grew up in a a regular Southern Baptist church, everyone hugs everyone. We do that a little bit here because we're not all natives up here. But these customs vary all around the world. The point is this. I don't want to get down in the weeds on this, but the point is this. is not only to think of everyone as family in the church and not only treat them as family, but... To do so out of a heart of love. He says the kiss of love. You can do something as a formality. Just give a give a holy side hug or a sanctified handshake. Whatever you want to do. But if it's not from love, it's just putting on airs. Then it's, it's worthless. It's pointless. But I got to see my brothers. And it didn't matter what sign of affection we practiced between us. When we saw each other, it was very meaningful. You know what I'm talking about. That's what Peter is encouraging us to do as a family. Greet each other with this kiss of love. Whatever that culturally appropriate sign is for you, let it be genuine and let it be personal and do it for the sake of unity in the body of Christ. This is sort of alluded to in Galatians when Paul says of the apostles that they extended the right hand of fellowship to us. That the apostles embraced Paul. Paul. So, obedience to this passage, right? We're, we're not wanting to disobey. So, we want to obey God and through His apostles, this is the exhortation. So, to me, it indicates just a capstone to this encouragement to treat each other really as family. How are you doing with that? In the church. I know it can be hard. And I know we can be annoying. I can certainly be annoying. And you might be awkward, but the importance of the body of Christ is so glorious and so heavy that those concerns are trivial. I mean, could we just start by talking to each other? Like talking to someone who is not in your age range or life stage? Could we just agree to do that and treat each other like family that way? Number six, Peter blesses believers. At the very end, he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. We
1: won't spend a ton of time here. It's very straightforward. But I want you to note a few things about this benediction. It's very short to the point,
0: characteristic of Peter, but it is rich. Number one, he emphasizes peace. This is the blessing that he wants for them. So this is Some people have called it a prayer wish. That he is wanting the believers there in all these different churches in an area larger than the size of California, all of them to experience peace. In the book we're going through on Wednesday nights pursuing peace, Robert Jones says this in the opening chapter. The Bible links peace and God in at least four ways. There's the saving peace that God made with us at the cross, and the ongoing inner peace God gives us in our souls. These twin gifts, in turn, bring two more blessings for the Christian believer. They enable us to pursue relational peace with one another in this life. Moreover, they guarantee us an endless life of future situational peace in the world to come. A new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Thinking through this text theologically, through the grid of 1 Peter, I think Peter probably means all four senses of peace here. Peace between, he's praying for them to experience all of these four different aspects of peace. At least he's saying because number one is true, because God has created peace between you and himself, I want you to have all the other aspects of peace in your life. Inner peace with yourself, peace with others, and one day Total peace in Shalom. So, this is a silly question. It's characteristic of a preaching style I despise, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you find yourself from
1: time to time lacking peace? But, in all seriousness, brothers and sisters, if I could be frank, we lack peace a lot. Peace in our relationships, peace inwardly. And we fail to have confidence in the peace that God will bring over all the earth. To put it simply, the grand and glorious
0: statement, In Christ, peace be to all of you who are
1: in Christ. That is the fountainhead of all peace. What is happening in your heart, dear Christian, when you lack peace is you are
0: either forgetting or acting contrary to the reality of Christ in you and you in Christ. If you are transfixed on the reality of being in Christ, you cannot lack peace. It can't be done. When you are transfixed, on the promises of God to bring global peace in the person of Jesus and to restore, strengthen, and confirm, and establish you? A lack of peace cannot abide in your heart. So understand, the reason he's summarizing it all, why why did he pick peace? Like he could have said any other thing. Uh, Love be with you. Or unity with you. He could have said any other Christian virtue.
1: Peace is the characteristic result of having confidence
0: And God's promises.
1: To all you
0: who are in Christ. Notice the concentric circles of this text. He's exhorting unity between two churches. Some people who have probably never seen each other. And then he goes down to the local church. Greet each other with a a kiss of love. And then, peace be to all of you, like within these churches, who are in Christ.
1: So it goes...
0: From the larger down to the smaller concentric circles. And he says, those of you who are in Christ. He's at least alluding to the possibility that there are hearers in his audience, people in these churches who have been willing to suffer perhaps even a great deal for the sake of the name of Jesus
1: who are actually not in Christ. But I think this has more of an encouraging tone as the main point, don't you? The point is this, if I could summarize it all. Peace, believer, is your birthright. Peace, because you are in Christ, is your inheritance now. Other religions give you a long, arduous path to find peace. I could quote all the Kung Fu Panda
0: movies. Inner peace. You got to strive. You got to empty yourself of all other desires. And you got you to go up through all these levels of self realization to finally find peace at the end. But when you become a Christian and you are in Christ, you are united to the fountainhead
1: of all peace and it is yours. Don't throw it away. Being in Christ, if we could just. If you could allocate
0: 15 minutes a day to do nothing but pondering that reality, you'd probably do
1: far more than almost any other use of your time, even in spiritual endeavors. To be united to Christ through faith, that God by His Holy Spirit causes this
0: mysterious union between the believer and the Lord Jesus We sung about it. All that is in Him is mine now because of my union with Him through faith. Just to ponder that. It could be the foundation of a new era of your life. And so we finally come to the primary exhortation. Those are the secondary
1: observations.
0: I told you the structure was going to be a little bit different.
1: This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We're exhorted to stand firm in grace. Which
0: on its own is just fascinating as a, as a grammatical construction. So what does he mean by this? What is the antecedent of that word? I, I'm writing and declaring, exhorting that this is the true grace of God. What is he talking about? Because he's used the words, the participles, exhorting and declaring by Silvanus, who, who is at least the courier of this letter, I think what he means he's at least referring to, in some sense, the totality of his letter. He's not talking about the immediate context. He's summarizing everything he said to these churches, and he's saying, this,
1: what I've told you, is the true grace of God. So, as we said earlier, these are the most important things
0: you need to know about life. This is an accurate summary of all that you need to know for life and godliness. It's right here in this letter. Peter has told us many things that are so important and that we so often forget or live as if they are not really true. So he says this is the true grace of God. You remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about verses 5 and 6 and the relationship between humility and grace and that grace is a privilege of the humble. So connect that together in the sense that you as a sinner, me as a sinner, we need grace. We need God's grace. And the way to get God's grace is through humility. And Peter is saying this, everything I've told you, is the grace of God. He's not just telling us about grace. He's
1: saying it is the true grace of God. Peter is saying that this is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This
0: verbal and written articulation of the message and instruction connects a person to all the grace of the living God. It is such a pure degree of verbal and written communication that it can be properly called the true grace of God. Understand that. and and Let me illustrate that a little bit. Never has a love letter been written of such purity and clarity that the lover could say to the beloved of his letter, this is my love. Never has a poem been written of the sea or the night sky or the moon with such elegance and
1: grace that the poet could say, this poem is the beauty of the night sky, of the moon, of the sea.
0: But Peter, writing this letter, says this is the true grace of God. You understand the astounding nature of Peter's claim. This is his apostolic seal. I received this as a testimony from the Lord Jesus Christ. These words communicated to you through this parchment, this papyri, is the true grace of God. That's stunning. And the fact that we
1: have this document is so encouraging. I hope you can sense that. Can we just sit in that significance for a little bit? God has ordained that you would have access to the true grace of God, right in your hand. All of the writings of the apostles have this implicit claim. At least
0: Paul's usually a little bit more harsh uh, in his description of this apostolic seal. He says, "If anyone doesn't listen to what we say, have nothing to do with him." Right. So a little more more stern in his apostolic seal.
1: But Peter says, "This is the true grace of God. I'm not telling you about it. This is it." The Spirit, working in Peter, has made what would otherwise be an audacious impossibility, not only possible, but praiseworthy. He tells us what we need to know. He gives us
0: access to the true grace of God. John Piper, in his famous Don't Waste Your Life sermon, said this, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter. Perhaps just one. And then be willing to live for them and die for them. Peter gives you exactly that.
1: Be mastered then, brothers and sisters, by the true grace of God. Stop hedging your bets. You know what
0: I mean by that? I mean... I know that not all of us know poker and betting lingo, thankfully. But to hedge your bet is to, to, to make a financial decision and you're like, well, I'm not really sure it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it or pan out, so I'll hedge this investment so that if it goes the opposite way that I think, it'll pay off for me in some other way. And sometimes, right? I would even be so bold as to say oftentimes, in our Christian life,
1: we hedge our bets. And yet we have the true grace of God. Go all in. to Push the metaphor a little bit further on the grace of God that has been given to you. Don't hedge your bets at all. Stand firm in the true grace of God.
0: We're not supposed to advance like Constantine. We're to stand firm. We're not to
1: stand firm and grow complacent. We're to stand firm and resist the enemy. Understand this. The church will never fail because of the Babylonians.
0: Even if they try to make us wear masks and take away other freedoms, you should not be worried at all. The church will never even come close to any risk of failing against the forces of hell raised against it from
1: the outside. But complacency within the church? Love
0: growing cold? Zeal dying down to a smoldering wick? That has already brought us to the brink in this nation, at least. The lights are going out. So what do we do? We stand firm in the grace of God, the true grace of God. Stand firm in the true grace of God, not in works of the law, not in our obedience, not in our piety or maturity, in the grace of God. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Not in the Constitution of the United States or your favorite political party. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Not in our heritage, our legacy, our spiritual resume. Stand firm in the grace of God. Not in your favorite theologians or theologies.
1: Stand firm in the true grace of God. Not in your comforts, your family, or even your church. Why? Because so much hangs in the balance. And life is
0: hard. But enduring in faith, following the example of the Lord Jesus, that matters eternally. Because there is
1: great reward and glory and honor and peace. For those who by God's grace do so. To summarize, I've selected a few verses from 1 Peter to give us
0: a summary of the true grace of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you.
1: who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself
0: restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.
1: This, this indeed, is the true grace of God. Let us stand firm together in it, dear church. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Give us confidence to stand firm. May we be ambassadors of your message of peace, your terms
0: of peace that you have given to all who would believe in the Lord Jesus, turning from their
1: sins, putting down their rebellious hearts and turning to you for new ones. Cause us to yield further to your commandments. Grant us in our hearts
0: a posture of confidence in your promises. And may we have this kind of peace that Peter prays for, for the church. May that prayer echo over these centuries and be ours today as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.